0: to many of the hands surprise I got show call on my first gig and it just kind of set me off on this path. I was so shy in high school that I was even too shy for the theater kids. It's a creative space so doing unconventional things is expected and so that's how you get innovation. Hello and welcome to the Theatre Art Life Podcast,
1: sponsored by Harlequin Floors, the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. Our podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Robb. And welcome to our LDI special. In our LDI series, we'll be speaking with some of the people who will be speaking or exhibiting at this year's LDI show running from November 14th to the 20th at the Las Vegas Convention Center. Today, our guest is Amy D. Lux. Amy is a multidisciplinary designer and dynamic consultant with a background in theatrical and architectural lighting. And controls for immersive experiences and the built environment. Her technical knowledge spans from design development to programming, wiring and installation to which she has nearly 20 years of experience integrating advanced lighting and controls. She also offers graphic design and develops training modules, leads and moderates speaking engagements and writes articles to demystify dynamic lighting and help architects, engineers, field technicians, programmers and sales teams understand complex subjects in a modality that is aligned with their standard syntax and methods. Amy welcome to the show. Thank you for having me I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for being up early to talk with me it's really exciting. I want to start with just you as a person tell us the evolution of how you became a designer and, and, and where did that come from what was your childhood like what did you study what how did you get into this industry?
0: Yeah, so I had a pretty unconventional way to getting to the industry, actually. I was always a visual artist, naturally, and, uh, you know, won my first award for a drawing I did in, like, third grade, you know, just the school award, but it kind of impacted me pretty quickly because I did have a a troublesome upbringing, actually, and art was one of those things that I could, uh, you know, make my own world and, and make sense of the world and maybe a little escapism in there, too. You know, when I got older, I wanted to just be a painter or a drawer and, you know, and and be really free in that way. Um, but of course, that isn't quite practical in, in our life, in the society today. I mean, a lot of people do make it, you know, in that way. But I was told, like many kids that, oh, you can't be an artist, you've got to, you know, do something more practical. And um, I was kind of being led to engineering and things like that, but was a little rebellious and did try to go to school for uh, for art. Uh, I tried to actually be a, an art and archaeology double major uh, at a pre-med school. So we had a little trouble getting that off the ground. Um, and then I ended up switching over to graphic design because that seemed like a practical way to still do visual arts. So I did get a degree in, in graphic design. But I graduated not too long after 9-11, and and also I moved to Austin, which at the time was a very sleepy town. Uh, I wasn't really a freelancer yet. I didn't really understand how to run my own business or anything. And so I was applying for jobs, but there just wasn't a lot going on in Austin at the time. And I mostly spent my time doing flyers for bands and CD covers for friends because I had a lot of musician friends. And, uh, you know, while I was doing my coffee shop art shows. And so then another friend of mine said, and of course I was making my living off of, you know, waiting tables and bartending was how I was making income during that time. So a friend turned me on to, you know, stagecraft and said, if you need some extra income, you can go be a stagehand and just bring a wrench. They'll show you what to do. So, I did my first gig. Um, it was a corporate gig at the top of the Hilton. And we had a stage that had three tiers and rotated. And that's what we were building. So, you know, I was a carp, I was just an extra body on my first gig. And I had so much fun. I brought the East Coast hustle that, you know, I'm from Philly originally. So, I brought my East Coast hustle down to Texas. And every time I'd finish a task, I'd run back. What's next? I was just having a blast. And to many of the hands, surprise, I got show call on my first gig and it just kind of set me off on this path. So I started naturally doing props and set painting as a visual artist, but I couldn't help looking at the lighting all the time. And I was like, what is going on over there? I really want to understand that. So I, after like a month or two, I asked to be on Lighting Crew and I completely fell head over heels at that point because I am even brained in the sense that if I go too far down the creative I crave structure and if I go too far down the structured path I, I crave you know the freedom of creative and lighting just was always both for me like you can paint with light but you're also calculating loads. so I went and did a bunch of certificates and things I you know I was coming into the industry a little later I was uh, I think I just turned 30. And um yeah, I just did everything I could to catch up and learn and you know, learn programming, learn moving light repair because I just was so in love with it. And that is kind of how it all started. And then I did mostly entertainment lighting for years and eventually I was always a I learned first moving light repair. So when I then became a programmer, I was doing it from the mindset of, you know, I know there's gobos in there. I know there's color flags in there and all of that kind of stuff. And so I kind of became a programming designer as I evolved um, because I came at it from programming. And I just kind of assumed those things always went together. And I took the graphic design principles and I put those into lighting design, you know, so balance and space and complementary colors and all of those things uh, actually translated really nicely. And then eventually I was asked to program some permanent spaces and that's what started me on the path to architecture. And I just was enamored by that idea of that. We're not going to just throw it in a truck in a warehouse for, you know, until the next show. So I kind of went down uh, the path of doing architectural lighting. And then I got into this little niche of architainment where I've worked with a lot of Manufacturers and corporate and specialties like that, and have gone a lot further down the architectural rabbit hole now. So, yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell how I how I got here. <laughs> that's that's an amazing story, actually.
1: Like it, it's always interesting when somebody has such a roundabout path, but they find their niche that they really love. You know, and I really like actually. N- nobody's ever explained to me the the idea of how lighting fits within that creative and sort of technical balance and why that fits those types of people. Because I often think that stage managers are also that too because they have to understand the creative and they also have to understand the the technical and push it forward. And stage managers and lighting people tend to get on really well because they're very similar people, I think, you know.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of balance there. I always think it's funny because when I was in high school there, we had an excellent theatre program, but I was so shy in high school that I was even too shy for the theatre kids and then, you know, this whole roundabout way to get there, it's like, oh, and there's a career in this? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: my, mine's a similar story, but I did try the stage. I don't ever remember liking it, but I was like, there's got to be more to this than being on stage, and I discovered that there was, <laughs> so that's too lucky for me. Now, now most people know what theatrical lighted, lighting is, but can you define what architainment is and like, like define the, what that is and what that means in the architectural realm?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's the the main way that we know it in the entertainment side usually kind of falls more under themed entertainment or anywhere that like architectural and entertainment lighting merge. So a building facade or a fountain like Bellagio, you know, things like that. Since I have gone down the path of working with a lot more traditional architectural firms and reps and specifiers... You know, it still means the merging of where architectural and, and entertainment lighting come in. So you basically take that RGB or that dynamic lighting and any kind of advanced control, even circadian lighting, I consider uh, to be under that realm uh, because it's it's dynamic and it changes without human intervention is kind of how I look at it. You know, anything where your controls are, are doing something for you and for your lighting in the built environment, uh, that would, you know... Kind of fall under that umbrella.
1: Was there a growth curve or a learning transition to go from you know the theatrical styled gigs to the more permanent installations? Because I can imagine the the way all that gets set up is completely different than you know bringing a light on a bar and and plugging it in. You know.
0: Yeah, it's it's very different. I mean, I'm lucky and grateful that I'm I'm obsessed with learning, and so. When I find out something that I don't know, my instinct is to find out everything about it that I can. And that's kind of what happened with this. So it is very different. I mean, I think when I was doing more classic arc attainment things like, oh, hey, we've got a radio station and there's this one room that they're going to broadcast. So it needs cool lights. And we're using like Q server and just like kind of things that you'd expect on the entertainment side. But it's just not, you know, it's staying there. It's not getting boxed up and put away. When I went to the architectural, the full architectural side, I didn't even realize uh, um, this is what it's like to be a curious learner because I go, I kind of can go into things like unknowingly sometimes. I didn't realize how different it was. And it's a completely different bogging. The architectural side, you know, I've had this conversation with a lot of people where we say like, light is light, you know, It, it it's just, it's all the same. Um, but it's a completely different set of rules. It's a completely different set of players. I mean, Meow Wolf, as an example, I was their first lighting designer and I did their global lighting and systems for Vegas and Denver. And I was mostly working with artists and I was working with technicians that were, you know, writing their own code with Raspberry Pi and things like that. And, you know, all I was doing, in the beginning was kind of teaching them how to scale lighting and, you know, use proven systems uh, for like a 50,000 and a hundred thousand square foot building. These are really large, but it was still in that realm of entertainment that, you know, we do, you know, in the entertainment side, four wall does installations. Barbizon does these kinds of installations. So it wasn't like super far fetched. I mean, it was complex and there were a lot of things about that project that were unique, but it wasn't that far fetched for standard entertainment that we see in the entertainment in Vegas, Dubai, and that kind of thing. But on the on the full traditional architectural side, a lot of times you won't even have a lighting designer. You'll have the architect or the engineer will be what they call the specifier, um, and so they'll just kind of put in whatever lights that they know and are comfortable with. And sometimes it's fine, but you know sometimes there's just not that extra piece of art or, you know, consideration of how things go together and, and beautify the way that a, a real lighting designer is going to look at it. And then the players and the geography is all different. Everything on the architectural side in the U.S. is based on territory. And so you've got representatives that are between the specifier and the manufacturer you know, obviously you're working with electrical contractors and general contractors as well. So there's just a lot of players, a lot of moving parts that are in between you and the final end piece. Um, so that was kind of the first thing that I had to learn was the territory I was in. And, you know, you've got to know 30, 40 different contractors that are all going to bid on the job. And then, yeah, like I said, you, you know, you're you're working with architects and engineers who may or may not have a deeper understa- understanding, especially When it comes to dynamic lighting, because oftentimes they're just going to put in kind of the requirement and they're not thinking as much of, you know, something colorful and and interesting. And there's a lot of budget and VE to consider. So um, it can get really complex really quickly. But I think that's, for me, what I kind of loved about it was because there was so much to learn. And then I was also very fortunate that I had already made that pivot years before the pandemic. So when the pandemic happened and I'm watching the entire entertainment industry shut down and you all of my peers work. in the industry, I was like completely heartbroken. But I, I mean, for me, I was like, I got moved to home. I was working from home. I had a salary. I was very safe. But I was heartbroken for my peers. And I still have such an attachment to the entertainment side you know, I still, I probably love it more than I even love architectural sometimes, but that's kind of when I started making more intentional training opportunities for basically my peers saying, look, this isn't going to come back for a while. If you want to consider pivoting, it's a completely different game. Here's what I've already learned. Here's the, the tech, the terminology, you know, all of the, all of the items that people need to know I just wanted to like offer that out. And, and, and so that kind of started me on this whole path of these trainings and webinars and sessions that I do and articles that I've been writing the past couple of years, where now I do it both directions. So I do it for the entertainment industry to say, this is how to demystify the architectural side. And then I do it for the architectural side saying, this is how to demystify dynamic lighting so that you can actually use it in your projects more and you know, get art funding for it or whatever you need to do to just uh, bring some territories up to speed with like the controls we've been using for years on the entertainment side.
1: Mm. Which direction is more complicated to get the theatrical people into archi- architecture or get the architecture into entertainment?
0: So for when I first moved over to architectural, I had to learn some um, standard architectural controls like Lutron and Wattstopper and and i found it so easy because it's it's phase dimming or it's 0 to 10 and it's all you know it's it's not all analog but it kind of acts like analog and so dmx control which can do any can do so much more than even lighting you know you can you can bring anything into that system and av integration and all of that because that's kind of you know already part of what most theater people know and understand i think what we do in in theater and entertainment is more complicated than standard traditional architectural controls. Generally speaking, I mean there are integrations, but they're all it's all pretty basic. So for me, I I picked it up very quickly. And everyone that I know that because there are more people that that have pivoted that direction the past year or two, and the people that I know that have gone that direction, if they have a theatrical background, they succeed much more quickly, um, and they pick it up a lot more quickly. I think. For some reason, I do a lot of training for architectural specifiers about dynamic control and control in general. And there's a little bit of a block about it. There's a, you know, that's why I call most of my sessions demystifying dynamic lighting because they're very non native to it, I guess. You know, they just, it's a little more challenging. So I think to bring someone that has a full traditional architectural background into the complexities of theatrical, even though on the theatrical side that doesn't seem complicated to us, it is more complicated for them to, to get to, whereas a theatrical background, those folks just pick it up a lot more easier, a lot easier.
1: Well, mm. oh, that's super, super interesting. And now a moment for our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Harlequin. Harlequin is the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. Established in the UK over 40 years ago, Harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies, theatres and schools, from the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high-quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages, working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field, with offices in Europe, the Americas and Asia-Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N floors.com. Do you think that um, in the theatrical in- industry, do you think that, you know, as technology moves so fast now, you know, and, and are, are we are we up to speed with what's possible uh, across the realms in architectural and theatrical lighting? Like is there more that's possible given the, the advances in technology and do you think that we're utilising those designs to the maximum right now or um, there's more to be done?
0: I think it's a little bit of both. I think we're starting to do m- more succinct, efficient, and and simplifying more complicated controls. Like OSC is a great example. And what is the word I'm thinking of? My 6am brain. Um, <laughs> API, you know, API integrations, and, and we've got like wayfinding and things. Uh, that can just go right into your phone and you can go to Target and say, oh, you know, you were in aisle 12 last time. Is there anything you need to pick up there? So we are starting to see these integrations, but like most change, uh, it just kind of can be slow to adoption. And so some companies and some organizations are doing it better than others. And, you know, it's just like, that's how we get our Googles and things. Like somebody just breaks through and says, look, I'm going to do it this way. And it's going to be awesome. Just trust me. While everybody else is saying, well, I don't know. I mean, we've been doing it this way for a while. It works. Like, don't bro- don't, don't fix it if it isn't broken. So I think we're just in this transitory period right now. And I think that you're always going to see, at least in my opinion and from what I've seen, uh, and I'd love to be proven wrong, but I think for the most part, because the theatrical world is a creative space, I think you're typically going to see more innovation there first, or you see it in the architectural or a more traditional space, and then it will be adopted there. So that's not to say that there aren't advanced controls on the architectural side. There's, you know, there's, they have to control totally different things, HVAC and BMS. And so there's, there's plenty of controls going on over there that are complex. Um, But as far as integrating, it's still very proprietary on the architectural side. So like my toys aren't going to play with your toys. And then you've got to like create your own dongle to get things to talk together if you can even get that far and that makes it more complicated whereas in the theatrical realm or the entertainment realm people are it's a creative space so doing unconventional things is expected and so that's how you get innovation. Mm, mm,
1: That's super interesting. Is there a particular project that you're most proud of in, in,
0: in either of those realms theatrical or architectural that you that you'd like to tell me about? You know, I mentioned Meow Wolf earlier. That was one of the the most complicated projects I have probably ever done. You know, like I said, there was a full range from, you know, when I first got there, uh, I was the first professional lighting designer, but I was put on the tech team, which was basically, uh, they were kind of just writing code. I mean, incredible, brilliant software minds. And... I didn't really want to reinvent that wheel. I had already worked for a company that was, you know, making their own control platform and it was very buggy. And I was, you know, one of two programmers for that company. And I went, you know, all over, all over the place with them, uh, fixing those bugs. And once you write code and it's not right, And you're already out in the world and you can't, you can't just scrap it and start over again. So you start putting a lot of band-aids in the code and, you know, things get really hairy. So I really didn't want to experience that again. I had known from that previous experience that, you know, there are incredible software platforms out there. Plus to scale, we were working on a 50,000 square foot and 100,000 square foot building at the same time. And we were working with hundreds of artists where, you know, had their own rooms and some of them were not techie, but many of them were. So putting all of those components together was very complicated. Luckily, I, I brought on Barbazon as an integrator. So that was very helpful because I was like in this little bubble, you know, all day long and trying to explain things to people that didn't have that background. And you kind of have like a, you know, a third eye or, or a third head. Trying to explain that stuff, so it was really great once Barbizon came on because you know I could have somebody to understand the ideas I was trying to pitch, and then on the other side of it, I was working with the engineers who you know were like having a hard time integrating it into the drawing set. So I was I was kind of you know taking it from all sides, and that made it really complicated. But you know at the end of the day, it's an incredible feat, and the learning curve was so steep. For everyone, that you know, to have it finally pull off, and then it happened, you know, it was about to launch during, and then COVID hit, and half the staff was laid off. So there was a lot of complications there. But looking at it now, it's so beautiful, and it, it is really a lot of teamwork uh, that came together for that. So obviously, that's like a huge, huge one for me. I think there's just so many projects. Sometimes, like, that's one of the biggest ones, right? There's also, Smaller projects, like I just finished working with the team on uh, Niantic in San Francisco, um, in their office buildings, and we just have this really cool break room space, cafeteria space that has, uh, you know, some really cool color changing lighting. And you know, it's a smaller project, but I get a lot of thrill out of teaching people to understand something they've never done before. And so, working with the electrical contractors on that one, for example. Uh, was really fun because they have no idea when they go into a project like that. Contractors specifically um, on <laughs> the architectural side have no idea what they're getting into a lot of times. And what are you telling me like, to do? <laughs> I don't you know, look, look, the wires aren't purple and gray and, you know, like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so, but then, like, when they have, it's like kids, you know, they have this, like, aha moment and, and then it's really fun after that and then they want to do it again, you know, so. Yeah. So I kind of think that's why I stick on the architectural side, even though I'm, I'm definitely a fish out of water in that area. Because every time I get to train people to do something new, all of those projects, no matter how small, feel really successful. Mm. Well, that must be very satisfying. The Mia Wolf
1: process, how long was that from sort of you being hired to the delivery? Was, is it a year? Was it a couple of years? How long did that project go for?
0: So I, I started off um, in the tech team. So again, I, you know, I don't write software, I don't write code. So there was like a little bit of a, where do I belong here? And then we actually ended up creating an infrastructure department so that I could toggle between the tech and the artists and the architects, because uh, there was a whole architect um, architect team on there as well in, within Meow on top of our external architects and engineers. Uh, so that ended up being a lot easier because I just said, you know, I really, I love stuffing LED tape into a weird shape as much as anybody else, but you don't have anyone working on your general lighting and your fire code lighting and, you know, all of these things. So so once I moved over to infrastructure, things started picking up speed. And the fun part was designing what I called triple threats, which was basically a fixture, any fixture that could be, you know, globally used across the exhibit that could uh, fulfill general illumination requirements would uh, be fire rated and meet fire code, I'm sorry, emergency lighting requirements, and then also could go into exhibit mode and be controlled with DMX. So once we got that underway, my tenure there, I spent a year and a half building out uh, the global lighting and the system, which, uh, you know, was an ETC at the helm and then, you know, going down to a hog layer and then going down to, you know, various layers to trickle out to the rest of the system. And, you know, we had put pathway outlets for DMX connectors in all of the rooms. So if an artist, if it was a flex space and it was going to change, or if an artist decided that they wanted to tap into the global system, that was available. Um, So just, you know, very layered control system and got both, cities through permit and you know worked closely with the architects and the engineers to to get it through permit and then uh once we got it through permit and everything was on paper and in the drawing set i let them go ahead and and build it and i moved on to the the deeper architectural projects so then the build itself was you know the build was continually delayed just originally just because we had so many pie in the sky ideas and we just had to kind of like uh cull it into something you know that we could actually build and then um finally when it was like time to to do the build the pandemic hit and so obviously that threw a lot of snags in there so there were there were delays from that but the build uh you know they handled the build barbazon handled the build as the integrator and they did a beautiful job with that so my time there of the design uh, was about a year and a half, ba- basically getting all the ducks in a row and and building the the lighting bible and creating it in such a way that they could rinse and repeat. You know, the spreadsheet was for days. <laughs> I can't even the, imagine. Must have been
1: that. the biggest jigsaw puzzle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to yeah. do all of
1: this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all
0: the is what lighting goes where. Um, and I had to also like because I was teaching the artists and the text like how to. Uh, you know, what lighting could be used in a, in a project like that. We, we wanted to kind of limit, you know, there's thousands of lights out there and they don't know lighting. So, you know, I made a sheet of like 200 fixtures based on type and was like, here's your package to choose from, you know, and then we, and then we put those, everything else we kind of like designed for the, for the spaces themselves. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, TMB Floppy Flex was one of my go-to triple threats, and US, the USA USAI Color Infinity Plus uh, Downlight and Pendant was uh, definitely one of my favorite ones to work with. In fact, the Pendant at the time didn't have the RGB capability, but I requested that because I just needed pendants sometimes, and everything else about that product, the Downlight was just perfect for what we needed. And I did that for so you? They- yeah, they did that for me and now they actually have it as, you know, anybody can get that dividend option as RGB, yeah. Oh, nice. um, so, yeah, lots of great stuff in the project. Yeah. Amazing. Everybody should see it. It's- <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: I, I definitely need to get there once I get back to uh, Vegas next time because uh, it's it's right there. And we'll be there for LDI, which is a good segue to uh, – for you telling us what
0: you'll be doing at LDI and where people can find you. Yeah, so um, I'll be I'll be floating all around, but I am also going to be speaking at the Women in Lighting session on Friday, November 18th from 3.30 to 5 people. It is a panel of three women and my se- segment will be uh, considerations for the built environment. So again, going back to... Um, helping entertainment lighting folks and theater folks understand, uh, you know, some of the some of the needs and modalities uh, to understand for pivoting over to or architectural specifically uh, architectural lighting. Uh, Paula Zinkel will also be there. Um, her session is called "Find Your Light," and Carrie Heisler is doing Women in Sports Entertainment. Uh, so that should be a really fun panel. That's exciting. I'm definitely going to show up for that one. thank you Amy so much for joining us
1: on the Theatre Art Life podcast today and I look forward to meeting you in person in Vegas yes looking forward to it thank you so much see you there Theatre Art Life is a global media site for entertainment memberships start at only 38 US dollars per year